0: So the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. Imagine if every follower of Christ were to take the advice of the world, to put aside the truths of scripture, and live a quiet and tolerant life where we do not press our ideas on anybody, we do not speak of absolute truth, don't brainwash our children or bother our neighbors with such exclusive claims about Jesus. That stuff is outdated and steals all the fun out of life anyways. If we took this posture... And decided to not speak of or pass on the truths of God's word, um, the church would continue to decline in vibrancy until it ceased to be. In many ways, this trend is visible as we look out across our nation today, as we see wickedness on the rise, indifference to sin in the church, a straying from sound orthodoxy among Christians, key leaders in the church abandoning the faith, the fruitlessness in our own lives. It is easy to get discouraged and feel anxious over the future of the church. I imagine Paul felt a level of angst at times as he considered his own situation. For the past several months, we have been making our way through Paul's letters to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy was charged with pastoring the church in Ephesus, which, as we have seen, was a char- church marked with all kinds of tense issues. There were challenges with false teachers, there were regular battles against false doctrine a loss of former love for Christ, people swerving from the faith, and a variety of of other heavy pastoral issues brought on by sin in the church. The church there in Ephesus was in many ways in disarray. Furthermore, in this second letter, Paul is writing from prison and faced with the awareness that the end of his life is near. The followers of Christ were a ragtag few in the midst of the large, hostile Roman Empire along with all the other pressures and threats to the health and future of the church, Paul feels a heavy loss to the community of believers in Asia. As uh, from the text Ryan preached on last week in 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes." Amid such tumultuous circumstances, after having devoted his life for the sake of the gospel, I can imagine the thoughts that might be rolling through Paul's head. Has all my labor been in vain? How will the church survive? Who will carry on the gospel torch? Even so, Paul is certain that Christ will complete what he has begun in saving a people for his own possession. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, We can be confident that God will continue to guard the good deposit and his people, holding them secure to the end. And so he writes to Timothy to strengthen him and encourage him for endurance in the work of gospel ministry. Specifically in the text for this morning, to write instructions for how God means to maintain and preserve his church over the course of time. Now, nearly 2,000 years later, we can see its proven wisdom. Having stood the test of every argument, philosophical worldview, persecution, the passing cultural shifts, and anything else the devil could throw at her, God has held fast his bride, the church. And So let us jump into the word this morning to hear from the all-wise God concerning what this instruction looks like. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And if you are able, out of reverence for God's authoritative word, please stand for the reading of God's word. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Heavenly Father, we we long to see you this morning. Would you reveal yourself to us in this text, Lord, make the riches of Christ's glory, glory glorious to us magnify christ in our sight lord help us to see you and love you and grow in us a passion and desire to know you and to make you known lord i pray that i would not get in the way of anything that you would have to say to your people this morning lord but that we would all be encouraged and spurred on to love you and desire you more lord bless this this body of believers grateful for them grateful for your word be at work among us this morning we, we look to you to pour out your spirit to, to give us what we need and uh, we love you, Lord, and thank you for your word here in Second Timothy to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So go ahead and be seated. As we've heard in previous weeks, Second Timothy is considered Paul's last will and testament to the church. So these are some of Paul's final words for exhorting the church. And they bring to light some of the heavy things that are weighing on Paul. As he's faced with the end he instructs Timothy to entrust what Paul had taught him to faithful men who can then pass that on to others. This is what we call discipleship. Paul is convinced that this is how the church is to be maintained and expanded to flourishing. Paul's words in today's text sound very much in line with the last words Jesus passed on to his disciples before ascending into heaven. He left them with this charge. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we do not need to come up with some new flashy strategy to raise church attendance and keep Christianity hip. This will just make for a soft bunch of counterfeits who really have no root or connection to Christ. God's true church is made up of disciples who follow after Christ alone, forsaking all others. This is what we are to be and what we are to reproduce, being disciples who make disciples. God has chosen to build his kingdom through this slow, humble process, through the work of his followers in making and multiplying disciples empowered by his Holy Spirit. It was what Jesus did. It's what he taught his disciples to do and what now Paul is exhorting Timothy to. I cannot think of anywhere else in Scripture that God gives another way for how he means to build up and preserve his kingdom here on earth. Discipleship is his plan A. I know of no plan B. So, what actually is a disciple? It comes from the Greek term mathetes, which generally refers to any student, pupil, apprentice, or adherent, as opposed to a teacher. Disciples are to have the listening heart of a student in every area of life to the one master teacher, Jesus Christ. A disciple's ambition is to watch, hear, and obey all that the master says and does. Jesus sums it up this way in Luke 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher." So when Paul exhorts Timothy to take what he has learned from uh, the position of being disciple and pass that on to others, that is discipling, teaching others, he is setting up a model for one, how elders and leaders in the church are to be trained up, and two, how all believers in general are to grow up in Christ and partner in his work in ministry. Paul is specifically writing here to Pastor Timothy, but this pattern is shown from Paul throughout his other letters. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 17, he says, I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. This confirms that this was not simply an isolated exhortation, but Paul's ordinary practice in ministry. And this is not just for Timothy and the spiritual elites, the pastors, the missionaries to follow after, but all members of the church to take part in. Let's just take a moment to consider this blessing. God not only saves us, but he calls each of us to take part of, in the most glorious purpose in all the universe. That is, joining in the work of God to build his kingdom here on earth by making and multiplying disciples filling the earth with worshipers who reflect his glory. What what a privilege that he calls us in to take part in this very work. And so my aim this morning is to encourage every believer in this room with the doability of discipleship and therefore motivate us to the joyful and intentional work of discipleship. As we look at how Paul modeled this process to Timothy, there's three questions that arose in my mind that I think will help guide us as we walk through the text this morning. Firstly, what are we to pass on? How do we decide, or how do we pass it on? And then thirdly, how do we decide who do we pass these things on to? And so starting with number one, what is to be passed on in discipleship? Paul writes, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men. So what exactly would fall under this category of what you have heard from me? Firstly, it's important to note that Paul is not referring to some obscure doctrine or teaching, but that which has been heard in the presence of many witnesses. These things have been, had been tested and seen by the broader church, likely including other apostles and witnesses to Christ. Paul is not a rogue seeking to, start to make some new sect of Christianity. His statement shows that there is a standard of orthodox teaching and a manner of life that disciples of Christ are to adhere to. The context of this letter helps us get a look at what Paul intends to be passed on. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 8 through 14, Paul speaks of the good deposit of the gospel that has been entrusted to them. Starting in verse 8 Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which i was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why i suffer as i do but i am not ashamed for i know whom i have believed and i am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This text is rich with theology and doctrine. Timothy is to guard these precious truths by entrusting them to faithful men who will then be able to and trust them to others. However, this process of discipleship is not... Is, however, is this process of discipleship just a passing on of head knowledge and doctrine and theology? Certainly not. It, Paul exhorts him in verse 13 to follow the pattern of sound words, implying actions or obedience that moves just beyond knowing stuff. This is expanded further in chapter 3, where he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct... My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings. You see, Paul views discipleship as encompassing all of life. Timothy is to follow after Paul in every manner of teaching, conduct, aim or ambition in life, his faith, his character, and his sufferings for the gospel. Or to put it another way, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Discipleship is about growing up into maturity after all that Christ lived and taught as revealed in Scripture. We are passing on any and all that we have learned of what it means to follow after Christ. Okay, so that how, how do we actually go about passing on these things that we have seen and heard and how do we pass that on to others? In this text, we can see there's four generations of disciples present. We have, Pim, we have Paul, we have Timothy, We have faithful men and we have the others. So there's four generations of disciples present. This uh, calls to mind a text out of Psalm 78. If you turn there, um, Psalm Psalm 78, verse 4 through 8, it says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We are to have a generational mindset. We're not just looking to our own time and circumstance. We're looking out into the future. Paul has this generational mindset. Not just taking things, but passing them on so that they can be passed on to future generations. So there's the Apostle Paul who taught Timothy, who will teach faithful men, who will teach others. Paul instructs Timothy... To not just teach faithful men, but teach them to such a degree that they are then able to teach others also. This is the model for how discipleship works. You learn from someone who's more mature in Christ in some area, and then pass that, and pass what you have learned to someone else. We must take the posture of both a student and a teacher. Each having its own set of challenges. Being a student takes humility. It takes reframing your ideas on the world. It takes positioning your life close to others who know more and are able to teach. On the other hand, coming to a place to teach, it takes time, it takes diligence, it takes having walked through difficulties yourself. Um, I, I teach physics at Lincoln High School, and in my time as a teacher, there's one thing I, I've realized, is that I, I did not understand the material I thought I knew as a student. Anyone who has been asked to teach something knows that to teach takes a far greater depth of understanding than just responding to questions correctly as a student would on a test. To teach is to take understanding to a deeper level than just regurgitation, but where it can be summarized and applied into all kinds of circumstances. This is hard work and it takes a good deal of time. So then one might suggest if there's such urgency to share the good news to the world, Wouldn't it just make more sense to have the gifted preachers and teachers speak to the masses rather than uh, spend so much time to train and equip each Christian for gospel ministry? This is not how Paul sees it, nor how Christ modeled it with his 12 disciples. At the end of Christ's ministry, how big was the church? After all the people Paul ministered to, how many did he invest into the degree that he did with Timothy? And all the masses that they both ministered to, They took a select few who they poured most of their life into. God really means for all of his people to grow up in maturity so they may teach others. Listen to this beautiful description for what this might look like in the life of a church from Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This growth and breadth of spiritual maturity will not happen when limited to 40 minutes of teaching once a week from Greg or Ryan or some other preacher you love listening to. It takes the sharing of lives. It takes the whole body of Christ using the gifts God has uniquely given each one to build up the church. No one is a product of their own making. Nobody just arrives at the full knowledge of the truth. We must be led, guided, and taught. I could point to numerous men that God has providentially placed in my life to that end, the foremost being my own dad. However, as I have been thinking about this text, there were two men in particular that came to mind. They played a critical part in my life during my high school years. Looking back now, I can see how both of these guys were strategic and intentional in the ways that they lived their lives. I remember that they took special interest in pulling me aside to encourage me and challenge me in my walk with the Lord. They would invite me into their homes. They would take me out for a meal. They would pray with me and encourage me in a variety of spiritual disciplines. But probably one of the most striking things they challenged me in was to see that the gospel was not all about me. Christ's sacrifice for sins on the cross, the peace and blessing that come in being made right with God were not primarily for Jordan. Using scripture, they pushed me to see God's heart and purpose were so much bigger. God was about putting his glory on display and giving himself to be enjoyed by all peoples, especially those who were yet far off. And so they pushed me to pass on what I had learned from them onto others. It was largely under the influence of these two men, just regular guys who were faithful and intentional to obey the Lord, that God began to grow in me a passion for discipleship. Think of your own life. Think of all the people and circumstances God has used to shape you into the likeness of Christ. Oh, how diverse and wonderful the stories we could share in this room. Each one is unique, but I imagine marked by a similar experience to my own. That is that the process of sanctification that is growing in Christ's likeness has been slow and has been hard at times feeling like you're just trudging along, or maybe at times even going backward, but all the while while upheld by God's continued grace. Likewise, in times trying to walk with newer believers in my own life and seeking to point them to Christ, the process has also been slow. It's been hard, it's been discouraging, and met with a good deal of heartbreak. But brothers and sisters, do not despise the slow growth and small beginnings we often experience in discipleship. The slow mustard seed-like growth of the kingdom is how God designed it. It has a small beginning, but grows to be the largest of all garden plants. There was a time in my life where I had a good deal of zeal, but was lacking in wisdom. I did not like slow. I was a passionate college student. I lived in a dorm with about 200 other guys. We were all in the same stage of life, Guys were hungry to learn and think and come into their own. This made for ripe soils for gospel conversations and life-on-life discipleship. There was rarely a night that I did not have a group of other guys in my room playing games, studying the Bible, praying, or having deep talks late into the night. I had a group of solid guys around me to help keep each other accountable to spiritual disciplines and to push each other to reach out to other guys in the dorm. It really was a sweet season of my life and a gift from the Lord. But it all seemed so easy, and in my immaturity and sinful pride, I recall looking down my nose at the older people in the church and thinking, why are they all so lazy? All they do is sit around in their comfortable homes, they just go to their kids' events, go on dates with their wives, hang out with their small groups. Nobody's out on the front lines sharing the gospel or making disciples. Little did I know, I I was the one in a comfortable bubble. After graduating and stepping out into the real world, I was shocked. I didn't have all the free time I used to have. I didn't have 50 guys outside my door who were eager to talk about God. All my close friends who pushed me to share my faith and point me to Christ were now scattered across the country. The process of making disciples in the real world, even in a church like this that is so focused on this mission, proved much more difficult than I ever had anticipated. Maybe some of you can relate with these feelings. Even so, the difficulty of the task in no way diminishes its necessity. So then how can we, in the mundane, busy schedules of ordinary life, be intentional to obey the call to make disciples? Coming to Emmaus has been a grace in my life, to open my eyes to see the importance of of all-of-life discipleship. I had a pretty flat perspective on what spiritual maturity and discipleship looked like. I thought I had to look a very specific way. But I am now convinced that God has sovereignly ordained the unique place He has each of us in. So that as we faithfully obey, he will cause us to walk in the good works he has laid out for us. So where might one get started? Consider the place God has you in. Are you a mother? Are you a father? Are you a student? Are you a doctor? A teacher? An office worker? A child? Or whatever other unique role that you may find yourself in. Consider how you can leverage the resources and position you are in to point others to Christ. Parents with children at your, in home, they are seeing how you love your spouse. They see how you study your Bibles. They see how you respond in high-stress situations. Model for them what it looks like to have a heart after God. Discipleship starts in the home. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Students are, are people working full-time. Pray that God would give you a heart for the lost people around you. Pray that he would cause your paths to cross with people who may need encouragement. Pray that he would bring specific people into your life to invest in. Keep careful watch on your life. The world watches to see how Christians will walk. How are we living? Live above reproach. And when you fall, point to the grace of God in Christ as the only hope of the world. Take intentional steps to open your lives to lost people. Invite them over to dinner. Go golfing. Ask them to grab coffee. Get into God's Word, both personally and with others. Maybe reach out to some people to start a Bible study. I know this can be intimidating at first, especially with those who are not having grown up in the church. Um, But just a practical tool that I've found helpful, both in my own personal studying and in studying the Bible with other people, is just taking our pattern for discipleship huddles. The hear and obey What's God saying in this text? What, what's going on? What's it say about God? What does it reveal about man? How can we apply it to our lives? How is the text calling us to repent and believe? What sin does it expose in our hearts that we're to repent of and turn to Christ as uh, the answer and solution? And then lastly, how are we to plan and pray and seek? How can we share this good news with others? And so just taking that basic strategy is a helpful tool I, I found to just get going and take some steps, studying the Bible personally and studying the Bible with others. Um, Plug into a church community. If not here with Emmaus, plug in somewhere. It is within the household of God that discipleship comes into full view. Nobody has arrived. One person may be gifted in evangelism. Another may may seem to have a more natural heart of compassion. Learn from each other. One may have raised four grown boys. Another may be a new mother. One may be tired yet experienced by the trials of life. Well, another young, full of energy, but ignorant about much of life's circumstances, learn from each other. As I said before, growth in spiritual maturity is multidimensional. We need each other to sharpen and spur one another on in Christ-likeness. Now this is far from an exhaustive list. The diversity for how this could look are unique to each person. But the formula to guide you is simple. How you have learned to walk in the way of the Lord, pass that on to others. So then they can pass that on to others. Much of this is already happening in our MCs and discipleship huddles. But if you're looking for more ideas for how this may play out practically, I'd encourage you, come and talk to Ryan or Greg or Logan or talk to your MC leaders. Talk amongst your huddles. Encourage one another to this end. This is something I missed out on in my college years. I was looking for the big, flashy ways of ministry to get involved in. I didn't like how slow-moving the church seemed. I did not appreciate or acknowledge how God was using the daily obedience, the ongoing fellowship, and the ordinary means of grace to make men and women into solid spiritual trees in the faith. Men and women who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, but who delight in the law of God. Their roots are deep, and they are not easily swayed by the passing whims of the world, but bear much fruit for the glory of God. That's what I want to be. I want to be a spiritual tree firmly. Rooted, and I think there are some spiritual trees here in this church, which leads me to the last part of this art of disciple making. How is it that we are to decide who to disciple, who to disciple, and who to have disciple us? Um, this past week, I was uh, visiting my bank for just a routine deposit of a check, and as I pull up, the bank here is on my left side, and. since the beginning of COVID, the lobby has been closed to lobby services. So they have two drive-through lanes. They have a all-purpose lane for all your banking needs here on the left. And then on the right, they have this express lane for just your routine deposits or withdrawals. And so as I pull up, there's just one car here in the all-purpose lane, and then like four or five here in the express lane. So I'm like, well, this lane's gotta be faster, so I'll pull in here. Sit there, after five or 10 minutes, I realized, well, that was the wrong decision. The express lane had now emptied out all those cars got through and I look ahead and the guy is still kind of looking like in a heated discussion with the teller. I'm like, man, this is not gonna be fast. And so kind of in a hurry, I look about, analyze the situation, and behind me I see that another guy has pulled up in a truck. And between me and the express lane, there's this brick, I mean this curb, cement curb. So I can't just like jump over. I have to back out and then get over into the express line. And so I'm analyzing the situation. I look back, looking at my rearview mirror. It looks like I have just enough space I could back out without hitting this guy and get over into the express lane. So I put my, car, my truck in reverse, start backing up. I'm watching my rearview mirror very closely. I don't wanna hit this guy. I see, yep, I'm good. I, I can back up, confident, backing up in reverse. And all of a sudden, the guy behind me just starts laying on his horn. I'm like, dude, it's okay, like, chill out. I'm not gonna hit you, relax. So I keep going, and he's just honking, honking. I'm like, come on, man. Like, and I, I started getting a little offended. I'm like, you, you doubting my backing up skills? I mean, come on, seriously. And as I'm backing up, feeling confident, all of a sudden, boom, my truck lurches. I'm like, oh, what just happened? Quickly scanning the surrounding. I look forward, and against the building, there's these cement columns. And the front of my truck, as I've been backing up, the front end swung around. And as I was so focused on watching my rear end, my front end slams into one of these cement columns. And I'm like, oh, so quickly, embar- so embarrassed, I quickly put it back in reverse, get out of there, and as fast as I can, get through the express lane and on my way down the road. And why I share this story, it's, I think there's something very striking in how it relates to discipleship. One is that we don't see the whole picture. We need people to come alongside us and speak into our lives and instruct us, see our blind spots, and, and point out the truth of God's word to speak into our, that situation. Secondly, it, it reveals the heart of the person trying to speak the truth. The guy behind me had no obligation to warn me that I was about to crash into the wall. He saw the full picture, and out of a heart of compassion, he, he starts sharing with me, Hey, watch out, man, starts honking his horn. And me and my pride and confidence and my own ability to back up, ignore it and just keep going on my way and uh, suffer the consequences. And so it, it also reveals the heart of the one being discipled. We're to have a listening and a humble heart, one that is receptive to correction, one that acknowledges we, we don't see the whole picture, and we need to have others come alongside us and speak into our lives. And these are the kind of people who we're to seek after to disciple. And so when Paul tells Timothy to take what he has heard and entrust it to faithful men, that Greek word there being anthropoid, generally referring to both men and women, This general reference to man and woman is conditioned by the term faithful. Timothy was not to just randomly select any person to pour his life into. There had to be a measure of faith present that qualified that individual for discipleship. As we try to discern what that means for our lives, I found it helpful to think of it in this way. Ask yourself, who will be my Paul? Who will be the person or persons you are looking to model your life after? And who will be my Timothy? Who can I pour into and push to Christ, even with the little I have to offer? I only have so much time and resources. I cannot pour my life into everybody, nor can I expect that somebody should pour out their life into me. We are limited in our capacity, so we have to have wisdom in how we use this time and how we decide who and where to invest it. So look for people who are hungry, who are eager to learn and grow, who has a teachable heart. And on the flip side, if you'd be discipled, Be someone who's eager to learn and has the humility to be taught and be pushed out of your comfort zone. Seasoned men and women in this church, I know that there are younger people in this room who are trying to navigate the uncertain waters of college and young adulthood. They would love to have you come alongside them and mentor them. Open up your life, invite them over for dinner. Young people, or really anybody for that matter, we all have room to grow. Look for people in this church, wherever it is, that you admire for some way that they reflect Christ. Move your life close to theirs. Ask them to meet and take every opportunity to learn from them. And in conclusion, I want to remind us that the motivation for discipleship first and foremost flows out of resting in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's so easy to get caught up with our own desires and concerns. It is so easy to get distracted by the busyness of our lives that we lose sight of what God would be calling us to. If you would call yourself a follower of Christ, your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Discipleship is not optional. It is a necessary outflowing of what it is to be a Christian. If you take what we have talked about so far and just say, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to go out and start sharing my faith with people. I'm going to start living as a better example for my kids. going to start a Bible study with the people in my office, you will just wind up burning out and getting discouraged and end up showing little fruit for all your efforts. This has been my experience many times following a message on evangelism or discipleship. You cannot take the message of the gospel that we are sinners saved by grace on no merit of our own, but because of the righteousness of Christ as the starting point for your life, but then go to work as if it's all on you you will be crushed. The end goal of discipleship is not obligatory obedience, but to enjoy God and become like Him, which then puts His glory on display. The first exhortation in this text before any charge to make disciples is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is the foundation. So before you would take any steps toward intentional discipleship, meditate on the truths of God's grace towards you, ask Him to grant you eyes to see and a heart to feel the depth of His love and mercy towards you. Know that the, know of the weighty offense of your sin, but know much more the grace of God that covers it. Know how dearly beloved you are in Christ. Preach the good news of this gospel to yourself every day. The degree to which you understand, believe and are ravished by the truth of God's grace and love towards you in the gospel, you will be strengthened for the work of making and multiplying disciples. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word this morning. Lord, I know it can come as a weighty thing, a overwhelming task as we see that how wickedness is on the rise and seems to be around every corner as we look out into the world, Lord, but you have called us to the task of making and multiplying disciples. You have a vision of filling the earth with your glory, Lord, by making worshipers for yourself, Lord, and in the midst of the feelings of overwhelming, Lord, would you comfort us, be near us, show us the doability of discipleship, how to take practical steps in the weeks to come, and how to leverage our lives, leverage our resources for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the Great Commission. We want to be a people faithful to you, faithful to respond, faithful to take steps of boldness and faithfulness in the places of our work and in our families. Lord. But we need your grace. We cannot do it on our own. Any striving of our own is, is vain. We need your grace, Lord Jesus. And so would you bring to mind the fresh truths of the gospel to us this morning, Lord. Your love for us in Christ, your grace toward us at the cross, Lord. And as our hearts would fill and overflow with joy at what you've done and how you've accomplished our salvation, Lord, that we would be filled to overflowing, that we cannot help but go out into our spheres of influence to make you known, Lord. We pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.